All right, good morning. Since it's uh, standing room only, we'll just uh, get going here. <coughs> um, we're going to continue, and I think this is the, the last uh, segment. I'm going to try to finish things up, you know, with the um, Nicaea Constantinopolian, Constantinopolian Creed. And, uh, you know, the, the, initial, uh, the initial objective in going over the creeds was to not only just repeat them, but to also um, show uh, that they're based in Scripture, okay, and go through proof texts for each of the statements that are made in the creed. So um, I have a handout, and just before we pray, just want to explain that the handout has the first page without a back, and then uh, page two and three, et cetera, et cetera, to the end are on front and back of the pages. So, you know, just you're not missing anything. You know, everything is there. I checked it, and if it's not, then I really missed it. But uh, before, you know, I get motoring on, let's pray and ask for the Lord's blessing, you know, on this uh, Sunday school segment. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your day, the Lord's day, when we could come together as a body of believers and, and worship you and study your word. And we pray that, you know, this time right now where we're studying the, the early creeds, uh, that you would be here with your spirit and that uh, you would help us to understand what we are reading and what we were, are going over, that you would give us the insight to use it to your glory in our lives, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Okay, so last week um, we went over, um, you know, pretty much laid the groundwork, you know, historically, you know, of the creeds, you know, the reason why we need a creed. And um, basically there's a few points I wanted to make. You could follow along. I'm just gonna use the uh, handout, you know, as my outline so I don't go too far astray. Okay, and you'll see I'm pretty beefy on my, on my outlines because it really keeps my, as I said last time, my head kind of screwed on straight as I, I go through the, um, uh, the uh, um, subject matter. But a few points wanted to make why early creeds were important. Remember, things were mostly word of mouth, but um, it's, you know, outlining a simplistic, unalienable statement of faith based on biblical truth. And we mentioned last week, we were talking about the fact that, you know, some, you know, sects in Christianity kind of quote unquote poo-poo the idea of having a creed or having extra uh, biblical material, you know, in, you know, their day-to-day -day faiths. But it was, you know, necessary in, insofar as making sure people understood what the tenets of the Christian faith were, number one, but also the doxological truths that counter and negate heretical teachings and influence during the first you know, century. Uh, as we pointed out last time, there was uh, the Gnostic uh, you know, belief system was very prominent in the early church. And uh, as we'll see with the Council of Nicaea and the Council of Constantinople, this was a big deal you know, in the early church. Not only the Gnostic teaching, but, you know, the whole system of uh, Roman and Greek gods and, and things of this nature. Um, creeds were used as a baptismal statement of faith. 
So when people were baptized, it was almost like an interrogatory uh, type thing where they say, do you believe in one God, et cetera, et cetera. Yes, I do, and they would be baptized, okay? So, uh, and of course, lack of the written word, okay? They needed something that people could repeat and rec remember that is not long or complicated, okay? So could you imagine trying to memorize the Westminster Confession of Faith? Um, you know, they had to water that down into what we now know as the uh, shorter, <laughs> the longer, and then the shorter catechisms, right? You know, our brothers, uh, uh, especially Dan, will, you know, talk about those, you know, during, you know, a service. He'll, he'll say, okay, what's, you know, what's the answer to the first question in the shorter catechism? Um, use for those who are illiterate. And, you know, I didn't realize it, you know, last week, but yeah, you know, in the first century, people were illiterate. You know, they didn't know how to read. They didn't know how to write. They needed to be taught, you know, a system of faith, you know, a statement of faith that they could remember and repeat. Okay, so before further ado, uh, I want to motor on uh, from last week. I'm going to talk a little bit about apostolic succession. You know, there was a, you know, a question or comment, you know, that was raised about this. And I'm just going to point out that, you know, apostles, when we talk about apostles, we're mainly referring to those who were directly appointed by Christ himself for a special purpose. And those having witnessed, eyewitness, that is, Christ's resurrection and commission and empowered by the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ through the agency of the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, if you remember uh, your Bible, you know, the apostles were, um, you know, after Christ was uh, uh, resurrected, uh, they were filled. He entered the room and he filled the apostles with the Holy Spirit. Okay, so he himself, you know, had them filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, this uh, whole idea is usually limited uh, and is typically limited to the 12 apostles, although Paul, you know, points out one or two other apostles, namely himself, that he claims to be, uh, what's the word that he uses? Unnatural, okay? He's, he's like, uh, you know, kind of like, you know, the, the hind in the litter, uh, so to speak, you know, in terms of the apostles. Uh, so, um, you know, I just want to point out that, you know, there's other sects and other, other you know, um, branches, if you will, of Christendom that believe that there are apostles today. And in the Protestant faith, that's like, no, that, that's not true, okay? So uh, it's mostly related to the 12. And, and also cults, too. Um, you know, so many times we... We hear or see that, hey, you know, uh, these, these people are apostles, mainly to give them this aura of authority, okay, that they know what they're talking about. And I think of, you know, some of the very, like, you know, uh, I would almost say uh, uh, bad days in Christendom. You know, you think of, you know, uh, Jim Jones in, you know, South, you know, America, you know, people, you know, believing that this guy is an apostle and, you know, he's a leader and, and people are, um, you know, brought to death because of, you know, what his teaching. But anyway, I, I'm not going to go on further about that other to say that, 
you know, when we speak about apostles, we're mainly talking about the 12 and possibly, and, and also uh, Paul himself, because he's seen the risen Lord Jesus Christ and was, um, uh, and was sent out, you know, by Christ himself. Okay. A word about the earliness of creedal statements. Uh, last week, um, uh, Richard, you know, mentioned uh, a person by the name of Gary Habermas, and he is a um, uh, he is a, a teacher out of Liberty University. He's a professor that specializes in early church history, and if you ever have a chance to listen to any of his podcasts, uh, it is very, very good. Okay, very good. And um, he's, he's very well known uh, in, you might say, the, um, the uh, Christian intelligentsia circles. He's, I would say he's, he's conservative, ref somewhat reformed in his outlook. And he stated that 80% of all creedal statements in the New Testament, I'll tell you what a creedal statement is, uh, and this I'll bring this all together when we talk about the creed, 80% uh, of all creedal statements in the New Testament are gospel or Christological, meaning that they're pointing to Jesus Christ himself and who Jesus Christ is, okay? So, you know, to the point where you're thinking, well, you know, that's why Paul says, you know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Everything is Christ, as you'll see, especially when we bring and we roll things up into, into the creed. So, He'll also make the statement, and this comes from another theologian, the earliest Christology is the highest Christology. The earliest Christology is the highest Christology, which means that, that the highest Christology means that we're bringing Christ up to the very top. You know, he is God himself. And I'll get into that in a few seconds. Mark 14, uh, 61, 64. Now, Mark... Uh, it's interesting because there's a little bit of, you know, among, um, you know, theologians, there's a little bit of a, you know, back and forth, you know, argument. Mark is uh, early, one of the earliest gospels, okay? So people believe it's written in the 50s or early 60s. So, uh, and allegedly, uh, Mark was a, uh, you might say, a student or a disciple of Peter himself. So, you know, that was written someplace in the 50s or 60s uh, for mainly uh, the people, the Christians in, in Rome. But, you know, you figure if it's in the 50s or 60s, that's only what, like about, what, 25 years after, you know, Christ's uh, death and resurrection. So, you know, to critics, there's not a whole lot of time, you know, for, for people to bake up, you know, this whole thing, right? I mean, it's, this is early stuff. All right. So um, just to, to read out uh, what's in Mark 14, 61 to 64, and you have this, you know, in your handout, I decided, well, I was encouraged last week to to make sure I'm reading directly scripture and not just talking. So you're going to get it today, guys. Just wait and see. OK, so uh, Mark says here and a high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? This is when he's on trial, right? What is it that these men testify against you? But he, but he, meaning Jesus, remained silent and made no answer. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. Okay, 
So when he says, I am, to any Jew, okay, that means, oh, he's saying he's God. Okay, I am, right? I am, and you will see the Son of Man relating to what has been said through, um, you know, the writings of Daniel, seated at the right hand of power, meaning the Almighty, and coming with the clouds in heaven. And so the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. Here is probably the earliest and uh, the highest, you might say, statements of Jesus Christ in his Christology, stating that he is, he is the one, okay? He is God Almighty. So that is why, you know, and Gary Habermas will just point out, that's why, you know, the high priest just, you know, tore himself apart because, you know, he's calling himself, you know, God Jehovah or God Yahweh himself. Okay, so um, and this relates to something called the Shema, uh, Gary points out, which is in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Now, the Shema, uh, I have learned or been reminded uh, that is really the Jewish confession of faith. Now, Jews would recite this every morning and every evening, and they do this even today. So a very Orthodox Jew would recite this to themselves. This is a Jewish confession of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command to you today shall be on your heart. And it goes on and on. Uh, you could also translate that first verse in 6-4 si in, in, uh, as, or the Lord our God is one Lord. So when we say one Lord, Jesus is saying, I am the one, right? So um, I thought that that was very telling. Um, not only that, but, you know, you, could, you think about, you know, what... Uh, you know, the, the one of the teachers of the law asked Jesus, you know, what was the most important, what was the more, most important commandment? And Jesus comes out, you know, with this statement. It's almost like, you know, and I think back, it's almost like saying, well, you don't know this? You recite it like every morning and every evening, okay? What are you thinking, right? Why would you even ask me that? Okay, so, but anyway, another early uh, Christological statement is in Acts, Two, okay, so shortly after the resurrection, you know, Peter gets up and he makes this statement, and you probably, you re might remember some parts of what Pastor Tim, you know, had to say in his, you know, teachings of Acts. Um, and I'm not going to try to, to motor through this in, in virtue of time, but it says here, but Peter standing with the eleven lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ears to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, because they were talking in different languages, since, since it is only third hour of the day. And I'm thinking here in Vegas, that doesn't matter. But <laughs> anyway, uh, but this is what, <laughs> you know, this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young man shall see visions, your old man shall see dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. I want to just point out here, 
that is very creedal right here. And we'll see that in a few minutes when we go over the Nicene Constantinople Creed, okay? I'm not gonna try and pronounce that larger word. And I will show wonders on the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke, etc. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Okay, another creedal statement. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus deliver, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified creedal and killed creedal by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, creedal, losing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, creedal, and I might not be shaken, creedal. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or hell, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, creedal, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, he both died and was buried in his tomb, is with us to this day. But be therefore a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn an oath to him, he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, and he was not abandoned to Hades or did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, of that we are all witnesses. Creedal, right there, we are all, all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, creedal, and having received from Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, creedal. He was poured out this, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Then later on he says, the Lord said to my Lord, which is really another creedal sit statement, sit at my right hand until I make a footstool, enemies a footstool, your enemies your footstool. Okay, excuse me. And then in another part, which also like, wow, uh, this, this kind of blew me away a little bit, but in 1 Corinthians, which was written in about 55 AD, so therefore about 25 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, Paul writes this in chapter eight, six to seven. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom we exist. Now listen to me. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things and through whom we exist. So he repeats it, okay? God the Father and Jesus Christ, they're one God, okay? However, not all possess this knowledge. All right, so you could see here that in early church, um, you know, the identity of who Jesus really was, was really, really contentious almost, okay? It was content, right now we have the benefit of standing on the pillars, you might say, of all this teaching, okay? But here it was, it was, uh, was kind of crazy, right? And, and thank the Lord, you know, for some of these, you know, early uh, church fathers who, who really debated this and came up with what we know as the creed today, 
Um, you know, think about that. Uh, so, you know, we're moving on and it, it just kind of, you know, these debates flared up and I'll go over it in a second, which resulted, you know, after, um, you know, Rome had a new emperor and they were more, you know, let's call it Christian friendly. They weren't, Christians weren't being persecuted. And in uh, 30, uh, 325 AD, which is, you know, the fourth century, um, the Roman emperor at the time, Constantine, brought together all the church fathers, and that is the first council of Nicaea. And they wanted to, they wanted to hammer this out. You know, who is, who, what is the nature of Jesus? And the big, the big thing at that time was uh, the relationship between God the Father and God the Son, and I'm on page three on the bottom if you're following me, to discuss what was called the Arian controversy. And this was a heresy stating that Jesus is a created being, okay? So is Jesus Christ begotten or created, okay? This was a big heresy that came out of the easternmost uh, churches. And out of uh, Wikipedia, and I did, um, I did plagiarize here, I apologize, but um, I don't think they care too much. But, uh, you know, it's first attributed to uh, Arius, um, and uh, I'll read here, who was um, with the difference that God the Son did not always exist, but was begotten within time by God the Father. Therefore, Jesus, here's the important part, Jesus was not co-eternal with God the Father. He was, so that suggests that Jesus was subordinate to the Father, okay? So this was a big deal in the early church, okay? This was a huge deal. And on top of page four, you know, I lifted, you know, in another section of Wikipedia, uh, verbiage on arguments for Arianism and arguments against Arianism. But let me just read the uh, arguments against Arianism. And I will say that if in your reading or in your study or anything like that on church history, a person by the name of Athanasius was critical in, in uh, defending, you know, the idea of the co-eternalness of Jesus Christ, you know, with God the Father and, of course, of the Spirit as well which percolated up to what we would know uh, as the Athanasian Creed, you know, later on. But these ideas were baked into the Nicene-Constantinople uh, Creed. But let me read here. The opposing views stem from the idea that begetting the Son is itself in the nature of the Father, which is eternal. Thus the Father was always a Father, and both Father and Son existed always together eternally, co-equally, and co-substantially, meaning of one substance. So when we read the creed, we say he is of one substance. He is the same. This is really important from the standpoint of salvation because if we say that Jesus Christ is lesser or that God is lesser, that just, you know, our, in the fact that, you know, God took, you know, the initiative in our salvation and, you know, the fact that Jesus was now sinless starts to fall apart, okay? So this was, like I said, this was kind of a big deal. The contra-Aryan argument thus stated that the Logos, the Christ, the Word, 
was eternally begotten, therefore with no beginning, okay? So um, it, this was, you know, kind of important. And there are um, biblical texts that support that. They insisted that such a view was in contravention of such scriptures as uh, I and the Father are one. So all that writing when Jesus is talking to the disciples, especially in the upper room, and even the high priestly prayer in chapter 17, points to the fact that Jesus and God the Father are one. Okay, they are one substance. And the word was God in John 1.1. 1, 1. So uh, the Gospel of John is very, uh, very important, you know, in all this idea. No, not only that, but you could see this in, even in some of Paul's writings. Okay, so principally the dispute between Trinitarianism and Arianism were about this. Has the Son always existed eternally with the Father, or was the Son begotten at a certain time in the past? Is the Son equal to the Father or subordinated to the Father? Okay, so, so the, the result was that this um, uh, Arius uh, was, um, you know, cited as a heretic and he was banned, you know, from the church. So um, the church at the time um, took the view of Athanasius uh, where uh, Jesus and God the Father are e eternal, co-eternal, co-equally, consubstantially. Okay, any questions so far? All right. So, you know, for Constantine, these were kind of minor theological points, but, um, you know, his main thing was to bring the Eastern and Western churches and their thinking together, which did occur. But there still was, uh, you know, this teaching was out there, right? So uh, even though they, you know, they came with a new creed uh, in after the First Council of Nicaea, uh, they met again, called the First Council of Constantinople, <coughs> which, you know, further hammered out uh, these these two natures to make very sure that whoever was reading the creed can't can't how could I say, mistake the fact that God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit are co-eternal, co-substantial, they are one, okay? And um, I think it's interesting because in the, night, the Council of Nicaea, they really talk more about Jesus and God the Father, uh, the, the Christ and God the Father, but um, in the Council of Constantinople, they needed to bring the Holy Spirit you know, into, uh, into the scheme, okay? So, um, what I wanted to do here, um, it's, uh, wow, it's about five to 10, almost top of the hour. We got about another 15 minutes. What I'd like to do is um, repeat uh, the Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed uh, as it was, and we are going to uh, say this during the um, uh, worship service today. Now, some of the words in the worship service are just a little bit different, not anything that's substantial. It's just because uh, it reads a little bit better in English. When we go, th when I read this, you'll see it's a little bit clunky, you know, in some places. And then what I'd like to do, uh, given the time, is go through each statement 
and give at least one proof text. But you'll see in your handout that, you know, if you wanted to follow up on this, I have a number of proof texts for each of the statements, okay? So with that being that I just want you folks to be assured that, that there is a scriptural basis to each of these statements, okay? It's not like, you know, the, the, uh, the early church fathers just said, oh yeah, we're gonna make this up, we're gonna throw this in there. No, there is, you'll see it's, it's packed. It's really dense in terms of, you know, uh, doxology and, and our theology. Okay, so with that said, it goes like this. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And of course, you're going to say, well, I, I could probably recite this myself, right? But I'm going to go through it anyway. So there you go. And of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things are made, who for us men and for us salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, a little bit clunky there, and was made man, and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate, historical reference. He suffered and was buried. On the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. So they, you know, from the Apostles' Creed or the old Roman rule, they added that in there, of course. And ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord of giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified. So we're worshiping the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, our triune God, who spoke by or through the prophets. I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Okay. Any questions on any of that so far? All right. We're going to go through um, uh, each, each kind of verse, and I'll pick out one, uh, but you'll see other ones you could quickly read because what I did is I typed part of that verse in there so we don't have to go flipping through, you know, our Bibles, you know, like crazy. If you, if you were to look at, you know, my Bible, like, the pages were really, you know, it's a new Bible, so it's really nice and crisp, but doing this exercise, they're starting to get all kind of grubby. I'm not sure I like that too much. But anyway, um, uh, I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, okay? Pretty basic stuff, right? But listen to me. Go back to Deuteronomy 6.4, which we just read. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, so... There's not too argumentation there, right? In Matthew 6, 9 through 14, our Father in heaven, holy is your name. <clears throat> okay, Job 41, okay, talking about Almighty. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? 
The second, the second verse goes like this, maker of heaven and earth. Well, you know, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, right? So if you don't believe that, then I know what I could do for you. Um, Job uh, 3.38, verse 4 through 7, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Kind of, I laugh when, when I read that. It's kind of like uh, someone from New Jersey. Where were you when this happened? You know? <laughs> you know? <laughs> anyway, all right, enough of that. Okay. Um, Romans 1 through 20, his invisible qualities, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, etc., etc. So Paul was laying down that, you know, God created the heavens and the earth. Uh, and of all things visible and invisible. You know, in the early church, you know, the Gnostics thought like everything that was visible was, you know, evil, and then all the invisible things were, were kind of kind of good. I, I think I got that right. But Paul wanted to, you know, lay this out in his, um, in his epistle to the Colossians uh, 1, 15 through 16. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Boy, what a jam-packed creed right there, okay? I mean, I didn't have to read all that other stuff. I could have just went through, you know, to Colossians right there, and that laid it out. And that's why I said last week, you know, in a lot of Paul's letters, they're very creedal. I mean, it's almost like, you know, we're lifting par pieces, parts of his different letters and putting them all together. You know, you're kind of cutting and pasting. You could do that on a computer, too. But, but then in John 1 through 3, uh, all things are made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. I had to read that a few times to really get it, but I think I got it. In the next statement, in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all wor worlds. So we already read, you know, in Colossians, all things were created through him and by him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So, but in Mark 1.1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ citing the Son of God. Usually, um, you know, Jesus is calling himself the Son of Man, relating to uh, the book of Daniel, but, you know, in this case, you know, uh, Mark is citing him as or calling him the Son of God. John chapter 1, 1 through 2. Again, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was, uh, the word was with God, excuse me, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Okay. God of God, light of light, very God of very God. We just talked about this in John 1, you know, 1 through 3 or 1 through 4. 
okay, using these terms, uh, God, light, and also the third statement, very God of very God, so that people aren't mistaken, you know, what the creed is saying here. It's begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father by whom all things are made. Well, you know, I have a bunch of cite citations here uh, from the scripture, but we could basically go right back to what I said earlier uh, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 6, was it? Uh, where we're, we're, let me read that again in case I forget. 1 Corinthians, no, uh, chapter 8, verse 6 through 7. And yet for us there is one God, the Father, through whom all things and from whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So, uh, and there's plenty of other, as you could see here, um, uh, points or, or creedal statements, you know, in Scripture. One that I, I, I kind of relearned that I thought was really cool uh, was uh, in the book of Hebrews, and I wanted to uh, uh, read that uh, right here. In case, you know, the, the book of Hebrews is really... Um, believe it or not, jam-packed with, um, you know, you might call them creedal statements. And let's see. And I'm reading out of the ESV for those purists. Um, Long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And that goes to a later statement in the creed. That's a creedal statement. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, okay, remission of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, right hand of the Father, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be with him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, let all God's angels worship him. Or of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So not only is God begotten, not only is be, he be before all worlds, not only is he at the right hand of the Father, but we are to worship him. Whew, pretty heady stuff. Okay, so who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man? I'm not going to kind of, you know, other than what we just said, belabor this too much, other than to say... Um, you know, because we read the first two chapters of Luke, okay, and it talks about that, you know, the Holy Spirit came on the Virgin Mary, she was virgin, okay, and God was born, you know, in natural, in nat natural means, right? So he was both God and he was both man. He was very God and very man. Okay, as far as salvation is concerned, you know, you could relate to perhaps Titus 2.11, where it says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. That's just one of many, right? I mean, I could go on and on, right? We could be here another day, you know, uh, citing different 
you know, scripture verses to support that statement. He was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. Again, uh, we, all, we all know this. We could go to any of the Gospels, Luke 23 to 24, Mark 15, Matthew 27 and 28, John 19 and 20. Okay, he was, he was under Pontius Pilate um, when he was crucified. Uh, he suffered a horrible death. Uh, he died and was buried. So this is a natural thing. This is just like, okay, when I die, I'm going to be buried, okay? Um, all right. So on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures, okay? So what could I say? I mean, there's plenty of, um, you know, uh, creedal statements in scripture, you know, to support this as well. In Acts 2, 32, this Jesus God raised up, and we are all witnesses. I excuse me, I misspelled we. First uh, Corinthians fifteen, which is commonly used as a, um, you know, as a uh, support <coughs> statement for this, and he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. First uh, Thessalonians as well. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. Um, we, we've read a few of these already in Acts 2, 20, uh, 33, when Peter got up with a drunken horde and, uh, you know, started preaching to them, or people thought that they were drunk, excuse me. Uh, also, a well-known one in Philippians uh, 2, 6 through 11, which if you read uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith alludes to Christ's um, uh, exaltation, okay? So he descended and he was exalted. Hebrews 1.3, we just said, you know, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. So he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. He shall come again with glory, excuse me, glory to judge the living and the dead. Very simply, um, you know, even even like in 1 Corinthians 11, 26, um, you know, for often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every time we have communion, we are acknowledging that Jesus is going to come back, okay? And what is he going to do? Uh, he is going, he's going to, as it says in Thessalonians, he's going to descend from heaven with a cry of command. And in 2 Timothy 4, 1, he says, I charge you, uh, Paul is saying to Timothy, I charge you with the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead. Okay. Whose kingdom will have no end. So right there in Luke, the first chapter, uh, verse 33, and of his kingdom there will be no end. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord or giver of life. Okay, so uh, in the whole book of Acts, it's a love letter about the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, it just talks about how the Holy Spirit was put forth, was, was totally poured out, you know, in the world, you know, for the sake of Christ's church. So, <clears throat> and even in, you know, we talk about the giver of life, Go back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. 
uh, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So this is showing that the Spirit was there, okay, at the creation, in the beginning. Okay, so the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and His Son, who with the Father and His Son together is worshipped and glorified. All I could say to you is, you know, in the whole book of Acts, is just one big, you know, testimony to, you know, this very statement. And who spoke by the prophets, again, um, you know, in the book of Luke, chapter 1, Zacharias moved by the Spirit, and he claims the Spirit of God spoke through the prophets of old. In Acts 1, uh, 1, 1 through 3, the Spirit of God uh, spoke through the prophets. Um, in 1 Peter uh, 1, uh, verse 12, who preached the good news through the Holy Spirit. Okay, so uh, in that whole section in 1 Peter, he talks about how the prophets foretold the coming of Jesus and that they were filled with the Holy Spirit to do that. For us, okay, not for them, but for us. Um, and I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Well, you know, we have to talk about this every time we have the creed because, you know, we don't want people getting confused with the word Catholic, but Catholic simply means universal church. And, um, universal church would mean, you know, all the body of believers. Uh, at the time, that was important because we wanted, didn't want to make a distinction between, you know, certain, um, how could I say, people who, we didn't want to separate people. So if I, if you go to Galatians uh, 3 uh, through, um, where is it now? Uh, Galatians 3, 26 through 28. Um, Paul is talking about, um, you know, who salvation, you know, is for. Uh, let me see. Uh, for in Jesus Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So it's one church, one body of believers. There's no exceptions, okay? Um, and it's apostolic. The church is based on Christ and the apostles. In Ephesians 2.20, uh, Paul talks about the church is based on... Uh, you know, the work of the apostles, the 12, right? Or 13, if you want to add Paul in there. And then to, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. That baptism it, we just read into, into Christ, into Christ Jesus. And I look forward, uh, look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Uh, you know, a big... Um, Two good, good statements here or supportive statements would be in John 11 where Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And in Thessalonians, which is supposedly at one of Paul's earlier, um, earlier letters, uh, to believers, it says in chapter 4, 16 through 17, 
and the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet Lord in the air. And those are just two of the quite many, you know, uh, statements where there is going to be a resurrection, okay? We will be with the Lord, you know, when we die. Any, any questions? I know there's a lot there, and I know I went through it quickly, but any questions, uh, just I'll take one or two. I didn't hear what you said. Page, page, oh, page five. You say, often misnamed as the Nicene Creed. Top of page five. Top of page five. Oh, yes, right, because, um, <clears throat> because this creed came after the first con uh, council of Constantinople. But the, um, the earlier creed, uh, which is the uh, Nicene Creed, does not have many of the statements that are on here. But when we read, like in church, we'll say, this is the Nicene Creed. Well, we're really not reading the Nicene Creed as it was. We're reading the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed, okay? Yes. Yes. You had a question? Dan? Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it's kind of interesting. You mentioned the Constitution, and I kind of liken, you know, these councils to look at how, like, even in, in our nation, you know, we're battling over what, you know, what, how to interpret the Constitution. Well, in those days, it was like, you know, we have this, you know, we have all these teachings of Scripture, and, and truth be told, not all the books of the Scripture that we read today were brought into what we call the canon yet. So it was, um, you know, to me, it's, it, it's really a blessing that many of these church fathers battled you know, over who Christ, you know, actually was and came down to this type of creed, so. That's it. Uh, we got uh, 10 minutes before worship, so I appreciate your attention. Um, Bob, could you uh, finish us with prayer? Do you mind?